This morning, I want to talk to you about the greatest day in your life. Not the day of your wedding, or your graduation, or your retirement date, or the day you'll make your last mortgage payment, or the day that your probation ends. No. Or the day that the Falcons finally win the Super Bowl? No. No, I'm talking about the day that Jesus snatches away his church. For if you follow Jesus Christ, that will be your very best day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that on that day, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the spirits of those who died in Christ will come with him. Their bodies will be resurrected and reunited with their spirits. And then, oh and then, we who are alive at the time will be beamed up. We'll be transformed into a glorified state. We'll be snatched away forever to live with Jesus. It'll be a really good day. And that day is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Verse 1 begins, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. Notice saving faith is a standing faith. It's a faith that takes a stand. You see, it's not enough for us to simply believe We have to hold fast to our faith. And this theme of faith's perseverance appears over and over in the New Testament. We're saved not just by having faith, but by continuing in our faith. Reminds me of a Monday night football game a few years ago when Eagles receiver Deshaun Jackson, he slipped behind the defense to catch a 61-yard bomb from Donovan McNabb. He glided into the end zone It was a touchdown, or was it? There was just one problem. Jackson inadvertently dropped the ball on the one-yard line. Oh, my. The Cowboys, they recovered the fumble, and they negated the score. It just goes to prove you got to finish what you start. You can't score if you drop the ball. And likewise with our salvation, you've got to cross the goal line of life with your faith intact. It's not enough just to have had faith at some point in the past if you don't finish with that faith. You know, people often ask me, they say, do you believe in eternal security? And my answer is always, absolutely. As long as you're trusting in Jesus, you are eternally secure. Salvation has nothing to do with our works, with what we do or don't do. It's all about faith, but saving faith endures. Paul says, hold fast that word which I preach to you. Don't fumble away your faith. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. The gospel Paul preached wasn't something he invented. It wasn't his own device. He delivered what he had received from God. And here is his gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Leviticus 16, all prophesied in detail the death of our Savior. 
In fact, the entire sacrificial system of Leviticus foreshadowed the death of Jesus upon the cross. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Several Old Testament passages predict Jesus' resurrection. One of the clearest is Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Messiah won't be left to rot. He'll be raised from the dead. And here Paul even says that the Old Testament Scriptures predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. Yet where is that detail found? you got to delve deeper. It's taught metaphorically three times. First is Jonah. As Jonah was a type of Christ, he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Second is the Feast of First Fruits, the harvest celebration that occurred three days after the Passover. Jesus was resurrected, the first fruits of our harvest, three days after his death on Passover. And then finally, you see these three days in the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Three days elapsed from the time that Abraham committed to sacrifice his son until God delivered Isaac on top of the Mount Moriah. Scripture predicted Messiah would rise on the third day. And what Scripture predicted, history affirmed. For in the next few verses, Paul mentions numerous eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or they have passed away. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians around 57 AD. That means it had been just 25 years since Jesus' resurrection. And Paul is noting that many of the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus rise from the dead were still alive and kicking. You know, if the Corinthians doubted this gospel, all they had to do was interview the eyewitnesses. For God based his good news, the good news that saves, on historically verifiable events. You know, God stepped into the real world. Our Savior Jesus occupied a point on the timeline. Other religions are tied to metaphysical speculation or to vague promises. But Christianity is built on objective evidence. You know, its enemies could have shot Christianity down before it even got off the ground. All they had to do was present the corpse of Jesus. But they didn't because he was alive. And there were eyewitnesses that would testify. Verse 7 After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Years after he ascended to heaven, the risen Christ made a special post-resurrection appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus. I believe Paul was the 12th apostle. He was Judas's replacement. He just joined the band a little later. Or as Paul phrases it, born out of due time. And Paul talks about his apostleship. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
You know, it's interesting. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 57 AD, yet he called himself the least of the apostles. He writes Ephesians three years later in 60 AD, and he calls himself there the least of all the saints. Finally, when he writes 1 Timothy five years after he had written Ephesians in 65 AD, Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Notice this, the longer Paul walked with Jesus, the less he thought of himself. And this should be true of us, shouldn't it? The more we hang out with Jesus, the more we behold his glory, the smaller we'll become in our own eyes. And then he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. On his own, Paul was the least of the apostles. But by God's grace, Christianity's chief opponent became its main proponent. Paul received God's freely given pardon and blessing, and then he spent the rest of his life finding ways to say thanks to God. I hope you're finding some ways to say thanks. You know, people today, they take pride in being a self-made man. Oh, I'm a self-made woman. Paul rejoiced in the fact that he was a grace-made man. All that the apostle accomplished, he chalked up to God's grace. I like to tell people, I'm hanging on a slender thread called grace. But the longer I do, the more I realize it's stronger than a thousand ropes. I think Paul would agree. And with grace, what matters is the message, not the messenger. For Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And then he says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now again, Paul is writing to correct problems in the church at Corinth. And evidently there was confusion over the idea of the physical resurrection of our bodies. The Corinthians were Greek, and Greek philosophy and Jewish theology were at odds on this vital subject. The Greeks taught that the body was the cage of man's soul. That humanity's ultimate triumph is to be free from his fleshly prison. That this body is just temporary housing. Whereas Jews taught the body's resurrection. That our ultimate triumph is not freedom from our bodies, but it is the transformation of our body. That one day, yet future, the trumpet will blow, and these bodies will rise anew. Thus, our victory isn't merely escaping our body, escaping the flesh, but it involves a reshaping of our flesh. The Jews believed that God's goal was the elimination of sin's effects, that God would one day raise our body uncorrupted by sin. Now certainly these Corinthians were Christians. They believed in Jesus' resurrection. But some of them held to a Greek concept of the afterlife. And here Paul sets them straight. They're contradicting themselves. For if you don't believe in the resurrection of everyone's body, how can you embrace the resurrection of the body of Jesus? You can't have one without the other. And so he says in verse 14, 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Hey, without Jesus' resurrection, Christianity crumbles like a house of cards. Hey, if Jesus is just another dead guy, like Muhammad, or like Buddha, or like Moses, he's not the Lord of life. He loses his uniqueness. Jesus is not who he says he is. Paul says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Paul states the obvious. If you deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, then the gospel of a risen Lord Jesus is a lie, and its preachers are liars. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. He says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Jesus had a human body. So to deny the resurrection of human bodies in general is to deny His resurrection. And if Jesus didn't overcome death then sin's penalty has never been paid. That we're all still guilty and that we're lost forever. We might as well trash our Bibles, sell off the church buildings, and go out and get drunk. If life stops at the grave, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry. And neither would there be any hope for our loved ones who've already died, Paul says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you can forget about seeing your believing mom and dad or your spouse or your friends. Paul sums it all up. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if there's nothing more to life than the here and now, then the sacrifices necessary to live the Christian life aren't worth making, he says. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then the last man with the most toys really does win. But that's not what life is about. For verse 20 tells us, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact is, Jesus has risen from the dead. Today he dwells in his Father's glory. And his resurrection paves the way for us to follow. The person who presents their body to Jesus, a living sacrifice, will one day see Jesus transform that body. We too will be resurrected. This is why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. You see, the Old Testament feast called First Fruits occurred three days after the Passover. The priest would bring a bundle of wheat to the Lord. It was the first of the spring crop. But it represented the entire harvest, thus the first fruits. And when the priest would wave this bundle of grain before God, he in essence was saying that there was more to come. We're dedicating this to you, Lord, but there's more to come, and it all belongs to you. This is why Paul here calls Jesus the first fruits of the harvest. Jesus was the first of many followers whose bodies will one day be resurrected. 
In other words, because Jesus rose from the dead, there will be more now to follow, including you and me, if we trust in him. He says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. People who are only born once, they're born of Adam. They share in the destiny of their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam. They die and they rot in the grave. But folks who are born twice, who are born spiritually in Christ, we are destined to be like Jesus. Our bodies will live forever. And there is an order to this resurrection. Jesus was risen at his first coming in 32 AD. The bodies of his followers will be resurrected at his return. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that the church will be resurrected at the rapture. After our mass exodus, seven years of great tribulation will follow. During this time, God's wrath will be poured out on this wicked world. The climactic period of judgment ends when Jesus triumphs over all his enemies and establishes his kingdom on this earth. At his first coming, salvation was on Jesus' mind. But at his second coming, domination will be on his mind. Hey, gentle Jesus is going to come and crush his enemies. He's going to take world rulers by the scruff of the neck and make them bow. In John 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus tells us that there are actually two future resurrections. He says, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the Father's voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The resurrection of the believer's body occurs at the rapture, whereas Revelation 20 verse 12 tells us that after Jesus reigns over the earth for a thousand years, Hades will be emptied out. At that time, all of the lost from all of the ages will be resurrected, but not to life. Their bodies will be tossed into the lake of fire. Verse 26, the last enemy will be destroyed is death. One day, our arch enemy, death itself, will no longer threaten believers, you and I. Revelation 20 verse 14 tells us, then death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Next, Paul quotes Psalm 8 verse 6. He says, for Jesus has put all things under his feet. And that includes death. That's the point he's making. This is the ultimate goal of God's eternal plan. That all things, including death, will be in submission to King Jesus. He truly is the Lord of all. And then Paul points to a technicality that sheds light on the unity of God's nature. He writes... But when he says, and who is the he here, who was the author of Psalm 8, in a sense it was David, but in a deeper sense it was the Holy Spirit. Thus when God says all things are put under him, that is Jesus, 
It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God the Father exalts God the Son and puts all things under him. But then the end, God the Son submits to God the Father. In, in God we find all in all. The members of the Godhead, as a result here, are equal in nature, yet they're distinct in the roles that they play in his plan. And then verse 29 is a puzzling passage at first. Paul writes, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now recall, Paul is trying to assure these Corinthians that the dead, their bodies, will be resurrected. And here he brings up a pagan practice to make his point. You see, the cults of the day practiced what we would call proxy baptisms. You know, today's cults do the same. Despite the biblical insistence that we're all responsible for our own decisions, Mormons today will get baptized for dead people who weren't Mormons. Supposedly, it gives the person a second chance to become a Mormon. As if that did you any good in the first place. I mean, it's a false religion. Proxy baptism is just superstition. And nowhere does the New Testament teach that it conveys any merit or opportunity. Especially not here. Notice how Paul words his argument here. What will they do who are baptized for the dead? And why then are they baptized for the dead? Paul never says us. He's specific. He says they. They meaning the idolatrous neighbors around them, the pagans in their area, the people of Corinth. Proxy baptism was never a Christian practice. It was an aberrant ritual performed by in heathen temples. But, The practice did indicate a belief in a physical resurrection. So here, in essence, Paul is asking, hey, no one is going to go out and baptize a friend if they don't believe that their physical body will one day be resurrected. So if the heathen can see the truth of the resurrection, why can't you spirit-filled believers see the same? That's what he's saying. Then he says in verse 30, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Paul had been physically persecuted for his belief in a bodily resurrection. If this was a lie and not true, then why does he suffer daily? He says, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. He says he fought with beasts for Christ's sake. He's probably referring to evil men, but it's possible he was thrown to the lions a time or two. It was often done by the Romans to the Christians. The point is, if there's no resurrection, then Paul is wasting his life suffering for a false doctrine. He says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and all we're looking forward to is rotting away, then why not live for today? Just grab for all the gusto you can get. 
Verse 33. But do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Apparently the reason some of the Corinthians had embraced these false doctrines is because they were hanging out with heretical people. Which proves hang out with the wrong crowd and you'll get hung. Evil rubs off on you. We need to choose our friends wisely. And then he says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You've heard the old saying, ignorance is bliss. Don't believe it. What you don't know can't hurt you. Take, for example, the man from Bristol, England. He dove headfirst off the local pier. He plunged 25 feet into the water below. What he didn't know, though, is that it happened to be low tide. And the water level was 18 inches deep at the time. Proving that what you don't know can have a tremendous impact on you. Wake up. Learn what you believe. Don't be ignorant of the book that's sitting in your lap. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Some of the Corinthians were asking about the mechanics of this resurrection. And so Paul explains to them, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And here Paul goes to agriculture to teach us some theology. His first principle is this. Resurrection requires death. See, before a fruit will sprout, its seed has to be buried. And it has to die. And here's what he stresses. Death always precedes resurrection. He says, in what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. A new body comes about only after the old body dies. A seed nestles into the ground, and it dies. And so from it, God can resurrect new life, new fruit. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. In other words, God created different types of bodies to survive in different environments. A bird's body needs to be aerodynamic. A fish's body needs to be aquadynamic. A body that's suitable to one ecosystem may not be adaptable to another environment. The Creator fits all of life with a body that's suitable for the surroundings in which it's going to live. And the same is true spiritually. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial or earthly is another. As there are different fleshly bodies among animals, there are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies. He says there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Each star has its own mass and luminosity and density, its own characteristics. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. 
It is raised a spiritual body. Again, nothing is resurrected until it dies first. Life springs from death. Bodies only change in character after they die. That's when a body goes from corruptible to incorruptible, or from shameful to glorious, or from weak to strong, or from physical to spiritual. I'll never forget the young man who gave his life to Jesus on his deathbed. He was in the hospital when I got the call that he was dying. He was in terrible pain. He was suffering from a a cancer that was eating him alive. I'll never forget going and sharing Christ with him. And he gave his life to Jesus right there in his deathbed. Matter of fact, I baptized him in his deathbed, on his bed right there at at the hospital. And I'll, I remember asking Mike afterwards, I said, Mike, is there anything else I can do for you? I'll never forget his response. He said, no, unless you can get me another body. <laughs> well, guess what? I can't, but I know someone who can. One day, my friend Mike is going to get his new body. It'll be a pain-free, cancer-free body. In fact, everyone who trusts in Jesus will one day receive a brand new body, a glorified body. Verse 44, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man, which was Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, that is Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. Adam was earthy. Jesus was heavenly. Adam came first, then came Jesus. This is God's order. Our current bod is from the sod, but our future bod is from God. Got it? I have a definite principle that I adhere to when it comes to rearing kids. Every teenager needs to drive a beater, a vehicle with rust on it somewhere before they graduate to the nice ride. That's right. They'll appreciate that newer model after driving the jalopy. And the same is true with us. Right now, we're in our jalopy. We all got a jalopy of a body. But Jesus is going to put us in a brand new model, fresh off the lot. Can't you wait? I can't wait. One day, I'm going to finally be driving a body with no dents. I'm going to have a new car smell. We're all going to get a brand new model, fresh off the lot. You know, during the weeks after his resurrection, Jesus displayed the capabilities of our future bodies. You know, he took his heavenly body on a 40-day test ride. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he vanished when they were having lunch together. Just vanished. The disciples were in Jerusalem behind closed doors when Jesus appeared in their midst. His body just passed right through the walls. And yet he held it out for Thomas to feel and to touch. Look at my scars. I mean, Jesus was still flesh and bone. He even ate a breakfast of fish and bread with the disciples. See, this is the kind of body that we'll one day possess. 
Here's how I imagine our glorified bodies. You know, lock your keys in a car? No biggie. You, you just kind of transport yourself right through the door panel, right into the car. But who'll need a car? Want to take a jaunt around the world? You'll be able to travel at the speed of desire. This will be real life Star Trek stuff, trust me. We'll all get a body one day that is out of this world. Verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. A Christian goes from an earthly body of dirt to a heavenly body of celestial substance. In a sense, we go from dust to stardust. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, our Lord Jesus. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You know, when the astronauts first walked on the moon, NASA knew that a human body could never survive on the lunar surface. Our earthly bodies aren't fit for lunar life. That's why NASA designed a life support suit perfectly fitted for the environment of the moon. And likewise, our mortal bodies aren't suited to survive the awesome presence of God. Hey, if flesh and blood entered pure holiness, you'd fry like an egg on a griddle. When we enter God's throne, we're going to have to shed our earth suits and we're going to have to suit up in a spiritual body made for heaven. But how will it happen? And in verse 51, Paul explains, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. A metamorphosis is coming for everyone, every believer. At the rapture, we'll be snatched to heaven, and at that moment, we'll get new bodies. He says, for in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, you would think a transformation from an earthly body to a heavenly body would take hours, if not days or months. But Jesus plans to accomplish it and give us a new body Not just in a blink, but in a twinkle of an eye. And a twinkle is a lot faster than a blink. You know that, don't you? My wife, Kathy, she loves to plant bulbs. Ugly, twisted, gnarly bulbs. I mean, who would think that a gnarly bulb would sprout into a beautiful flower? But it does. And this is what's going to happen when Jesus returns for his church You and I right now, we're ugly, gnarly bulbs. hate to tell you that, but we are. But suddenly, when Jesus returns, we'll sprout into gorgeous flowers. We're caterpillars right now, but we're bound to turn into butterflies. On that day, we'll shed our cocoons. We'll sprout our wings. I love this inscription that appeared on the tombstone, Budded on earth to bloom in heaven. This is the destiny of all believers. And then verse 53 tells us, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Bodies designed for time and space aren't capable of occupying eternity. We need bodies with heavenly capacities. 
our mortal bodies must put on immortality. So when this incorruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See, our Lord Jesus won't be satisfied until he has reversed every trace of sin and its painful consequences, especially that of death. He'll one day abolish death once and for all. And Paul is so sure of it, he begins to taunt death. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? You see, death is the only pest that stings before it bites. The worst aspect of death is not that it stops life, but that it spoils life before it ends. Death casts a cloud over the good times, knowing that they'll one day be over. The wealthy man doesn't feel quite so rich, knowing he can't take it with him. Fame loses its luster, knowing that it only lasts for a short time. Death is a robber. It steals away our joys. Death terminates relationships. It busts up homes and hearts. It creates missed opportunities. It causes regrets that are never resolved. Death certainly stings. Once there was a little boy, he was allergic to bee stings. He and his dad, they were driving along in the car when he saw a bee fluttering over the dashboard up against the glass. The little guy panicked. He screamed for his father to do something. Dad was driving. He didn't know what to do. Finally, dad reached up with his fist and he caught the bee in his hand. Well, after a minute or so, he released his fist and let the bee fly away. And again, the little boy came unglued. Dad, what are you trying to do? You know I'm allergic to bee stings. That's when the dad opened his fist and he showed his son the stinger stuck in the palm of his hand. You see, the dad had allowed the bee to sting him instead of his son. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He has taken the sting of death in his feet and in his side and in his hands. Jesus was separated from the Father so that you and I could live with him forever. He's paid sin's penalty so that we could be forgiven. Once and for all, Jesus has defeated death. And now Paul taunts death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The bars of Hades have been broken now. Jesus has sprung us all free. And Paul sums it up. The sting of sin is death, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. And then verse 58, how we should live in response. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Guys, there, there is life after the grave. One day we all will stand before our Creator. This means that the labor that we do for the Lord in this life really does matter. What you do today will affect your eternity. And this is why Paul says, be steadfast. If that's true, never give up. Be immovable. If this is true, then don't cave in to the pressures of this world. Never give in. 
And be always abounding. Never give out in the work of the Lord. Never give up. Never give in. Never give out. What you do for Jesus really does matter. And then verse 16, I mean chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now Paul has been talking about an offering from the Gentile churches for the first church back in Jerusalem. You remember we talked about this. The Christians in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. Judea was suffering a famine that had left many folks hungry. And Paul felt that the Gentile Christians owed their Jewish brothers a debt of gratitude. After all, the Gentile spiritual heritage had begun in Jerusalem among the Jews. And so he continues, As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, and notice this was when Christians met, then and now, still today, we meet on Sundays. And why? That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day we should meet. And when the church gathers, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now here's a part of worship that's often overlooked. But I think it's just as important as our singing or our praying, and perhaps more revealing as to where our heart truly lies. We also worship God with the giving of our money. Paul wanted the church in Corinth to pony up and take their part in the collection before he visited. It would be awkward for Paul to have to deal with this personally once he came. He says, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And this was a wise move. Paul says that he'll bring along a representative of the people who gave the money to escort the money to its destination. He was willingly accountable to those who were giving the money. But if it is fitting that I go also, then they will go with me. Verse 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. For I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you. That you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way. But I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Or as it's pronounced in Latin. Deo valente, which means God willing. It's interesting to me. Paul was the preeminent leader of the church, but he never stopped following Jesus himself. His decisions were always contingent if the Lord wills or if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, that is late spring. For a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Hey, notice, adversaries didn't stop Paul from pursuing opportunities. You know, if Christians were less intimidated by our adversaries, we'd find a lot more opportunities to speak for Jesus, wouldn't we? Verse 10. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him. But send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Timothy was coming through Corinth on the way to Paul in Ephesus, and so Paul asked the Corinthians to help him on his journey. Just as he'll encourage Apollos to visit Corinth, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. 
I don't know what Apollos' problem was. But for some reason, he was unwilling to, to go at that time to Corinth. But Paul was confident that he would make his way when he had the opportunity. And so Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 13, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. What an admonition. Watch. Are you watching? Are you watching for the coming of Christ? Are you standing? Are you standing in your faith, being bold? Are you believing and trusting in Jesus? Are you being brave? Are you being strong? Are you being loving? What a challenge for you and I. And then he says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Stephanus' family was apparently Paul's first converts in Corinth. And that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Now apparently Stephanus was not only one of the first believers, but he became the first pastor. His family founded the church. You know, earlier in Paul's letters, he had rebuked the Corinthians for rallying around celebrity pastors, for saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. Well, I like it here. He snubs the superstar pastors. And he tells them to support their local leadership. Be loyal to this faithful pastor, he says, who serves you in the trenches. This Stephanus. Not the slick, polished guy who sweeps into the town and impresses everyone before they really get to know him. No, acknowledge that pastor who serves alongside you. The Stephanuses in your life. Verse 17. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit in yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. This was the trio who came to Paul with Corinthian support. And they probably had also, they also were the ones who had reported to Paul the problems that were going on in Corinth. Paul knows that that could get them branded as tattletales. And so here he urges everyone to show them some respect. Acknowledge these men, they're good guys. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. Boy, Aquila and Priscilla, they're at it again. Everywhere you see them in Scripture, they have a church meeting in their house. This dynamic duo had once lived in Corinth. Now they were writing to Paul and asking him to greet their friends for them. They had opened their hearts and their home for the Lord. Now all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And the point here is whether it's a kiss or a handshake or a hug or a high five or whatever greeting you choose, do it warmly, do it sincerely, and certainly do it in a holy manner. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. The apostle's custom was to dictate his correspondence through a stenographer. And then at the end of the dictation, he would take the quill from the guy's hand and he would add his signature to authenticate the letter. And so here he writes, Paul. Verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. 
literally anathema. It means excommunicated. And please understand this. If you're not allied to God's Son, Jesus Christ, you're not part of God's family. You're on the outside looking in, friend. Anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Paul adds an Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, or in English, O Lord, come. He was longing, constantly longing to be caught up with Jesus and looking for his return. So should we. He closes his first letter to the Corinthians in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. He's had to say some hard things to these Corinthians, but he wants them to remember here at the end how much he loves them. And so there we have Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. But guess what? He's got more to say to these guys. Because if you'll look a little bit ahead, you'll see 2 Corinthians. He writes them another letter. And we'll study that next week.